If you have your copy of God's Word open to the book of Jeremiah, we're in a sermon series called Blessed to Broken. For those of you who are guests of ours, the pattern of our preaching ministry is to preach through books of the Bible verse by verse. We just think it's the most faithful way to milk God's Word of all its nutrients in our lives. We begin in August walking through the Old Testament prophetic book of Jeremiah. It's one of the major prophets. It's quite intimidating in many ways when you begin to read the book of Jeremiah because of the edge, the sharpness of its message. Let me just remind you again Jeremiah's day and hours. In Jeremiah's day, there had been a long time since any spiritual revival had taken place. We can appreciate that. In Jeremiah's day, society seemed to be crumbling, falling apart. Jeremiah wrestles with this all through the book. In Jeremiah's day, there were many people who said, we, we don't know what to do. That sounds familiar. And in Jeremiah's day, there were people who had forgotten what God had done for them in the past. They had forgotten where they'd come from. They'd become arrogant on their own accomplishments. And finally, there were people in Jeremiah's day, and at times even Jeremiah lamenting in this prophetic book said, there is no hope. I chose this book way back last year because I knew it would be so timely for you and me as we face everything that we face. Little could we have known all that 2020 and the beginning of 2021 would entail, but this book has spoken with such clarity the most important truth, and let me remind you what that is, the most important part of biblical prophecy is that it's about God, not about us. Now listen, your Bible is full of you. You can find you in the pages. You can relate to almost every character in some way. And the Bible is written to humans. God did not need the Bible. The Bible came after creation when he wanted to speak to his people through his word. The word as Christ has lived forever in perfect unity with God in the Godhead. But the written words of scripture came not because God needed them, but we need them. And why do we need them? Because the most important reality of a person of faith's life it's not your view of your church, your view of yourself, your view of your country, your view of your future, or even your view of your past. The most important part of your life is your view of your God. Your perspective of who he is informs, challenges, and changes everything. And as has been so beautifully celebrated through song by those incredibly talented young people on our stage just a few moments ago, we have a holy and righteous God. And if you were to take all the biblical prophecy and condense it into a sentence, if you will, God is great and greatly to be praised. When we miss this, when we forget of the greatness of God, when we struggle to remember his sovereign control, when we don't see him in his glorious grace and infinite holiness, then we run the risk of wasting our lives. In fact, I love the way John Piper says it when he summarizes really the thrust of his ministry. You waste your life if you don't do what you're designed to do. And every human being created in the image of God was designed to reflect the glory of God, the worth of God, the beauty of God. 
Dr. Piper goes on to say, so if we don't find our joy in Christ, if we don't find our satisfaction in Christ, but instead find it in other things that may in the short term look very satisfying, well, we waste our lives. I don't want to waste my life. I want to have a big, grand, massive, magnificent view of the great God I serve. I've been thinking about this in light of events over the last year, year and a half, and one of the things that has come to my attention, or at least the Holy Spirit has spoken to me about, is there seems to be this yearning among Christians to, to find somebody we can point to and say, you know, th th there's, our, there's our guy. Uh, three men, for example, that I don't know personally, Kanye, Trump, and Ravi. Kanye, Trump, and Ravi. You may say, what in the world? Where have we gone with this sermon? I got your attention, didn't I? Right? Obviously, one of them is an acclaimed artist. The other one, of course, just finished his term as president. And Ravi Zachariah was a longtime celebrated Christian apologist, meaning he defended the faith of a brilliant mind. And I watched in 2019, it came out, Kanye got saved. Came out with an album. I downloaded the album, my iTunes. I enjoyed some of the songs on the album. I didn't like some of them, some of them I liked. And Kanye began to share his testimony. He spoke in different Christian arenas and and shared about his coming to faith I, I don't know any of these three men personally I have no desire to use my pulpit to make a statement about their personal faith that's between them and the Lord but I read this week that he and his wife are now divorcing his family is falling apart there were many on the Christian right that, that identified Trump as the Christian candidate and, and had to deal with his past and his struggles. And, and I even heard people who would share many of the same values I shared. Almost act as if there would be no tomorrow if he was not reelected. And, and yet here we are. Sun came up this morning. God's on his throne. In fact, even this week, the South Carolina Senate passed an incredibly good bill to protect life once a heartbeat has been detected. Huge deal in our state. It's now headed to, of course, the House, which is uh, led by a majority of people who will vote for it. It's going to become law. It will be challenged, I am sure. But we are grateful for that. So see, God is still moving, no matter who's in the Oval Office. And then finally, Ravi Zachariah, long, long time Christian apologist. I have not only benefited from his writing and his teaching, I listened to him share and defend the faith, and I think, what in the world am I ever doing with a microphone in my hand? I'm certainly not even close to being as articulate and, and, and able to handle, and now in his death, posthumously, it has been discovered that he had a hidden sin, a hidden sin issue with tremendous amounts of ramifications all kinds of sexual sin in his past his organization is falling apart and it breaks our heart because we know we know people who love Jesus are capable of sinning Bible's full of those people my church is full of those people your pulpit is one of those men I love the Lord Jesus and I know that my love for him does not mean I'm immune from failing or struggling or succumbing to the power of sin momentarily. But the pattern of a Christian's life is that when he or she stumbles, they should feel conviction and that they should move to confess that sin. 
No one needs to stand up and throw any of these individuals under a bus or condemn them. The scripture would say that we should deal with our own hearts. But the interesting thing, the fascinating thing, is that I saw Christians quickly want to rally behind individuals. And then we find holes in every single testimony, in every single witness. Listen to me very carefully. I have no doubt that all of these men have done good and all of these men have done bad. People can and should strengthen your faith. But it better be in God alone. Your faith has to be in the greatness of God alone. If you build your walk on celebrities getting saved or presidents putting forth policies that you agree with, are individuals who have stages like this one and pulpits and who speak with great might. If your faith is in men and women of God, you are setting yourself up for failure. And the Old Testament prophets over and over again opposed any person who would place their faith anywhere but God alone. Should you trust your pastor? I believe you should. He should earn it but you should trust him. Should you recognize that God ministers through broken pots and some of the most powerful Christians you may come in contact with have a tremendously sinful past that God has wonderfully rescued them from? Absolutely. When someone stumbles and falls, perhaps someone in leadership, should you run quickly to finish them off and step on their throat and walk away from them? Or should you pray for grace to abound? Yes, you should pray for grace to abound. But if you don't want your faith derailed, if you don't want your belief bankrupt your faith has to be in God alone and the greatness of God is what biblical prophecy is about and we come this morning to a passage really that speaks to only God now we understand that God shares many things with us but there are certain things that only God can experience Jeremiah has lamented to the Lord. For those of you who were here with us last week or those of you watching online who watched last week's message in Jeremiah chapter 12, uh, Jeremiah asks a question in verse 1, second phrase. He says, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? And so Jeremiah's hurting and he's wrestling with God. He's lamenting to the Lord. The main message last week was you can hurt and struggle with what you see God doing or what you don't see God doing as long as you bring your frustrations and your struggles to the Lord and not run away from him in cynicism. And Jeremiah is doing that. He is bringing his frustration and his fear and his anxiety to the Lord. I hope some of you will do that in the invitation today. I hope you'll come down here and say, Lord, I'm struggling with something, and I don't have a rosy answer in mind, and I don't know what you're doing, but I'm bearing my soul before you. God is looking for men and women who will bear their soul, write a blank check with their life, and say, God, I am hurting and struggling and frustrated, and some of my frustration is the inactivity I see on your part or things that I see you allow that I don't understand, and I'm bringing those concerns to you. So Jeremiah has done that. In this relationship of intimacy, he has brought his frustration, his heartache to the Lord. And God answers Jeremiah, and then we get to verse 7. And God says, hold up, Jeremiah, if, if you don't mind for a moment, let me take the microphone, and let me tell you how I feel. You know, if you love the Lord, you want to know how he feels. 
We've got to be real careful. We can't read into God that he is an emotional being like us who is often prone to succumb to weakness, frailties. No, no, no. He's good. He's unchanging. He's relentless. He doesn't move. But God feels. The scriptures indicate that. We don't worship a golden idol. We worship a living being. That's why when you study theology, you talk about the person of Christ, the person of the Holy Spirit, the person of God the Father. And the reason we do that is it's not because we read our human perspective into it. It's because we read what God has said about himself. He feels. How has he identified himself to us? As a father. What did he give us? A servant? No, no, no. A son. What did he say to his people, I would be to you? He said, you will be my bride and I will be your husband. God could have chosen any word he wanted to, but he continues to talk about this intimate connection. And so as he begins to share, first, God shares with Jeremiah and Jeremiah shows us heartache that only God can feel. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 7. I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. Note the possessive personal pronoun, my. I have forsaken my house. You invite me over to your house. You know what you want me to do after a few hours? Leave. Can't stay at your house, right? If I bring all my kids, it don't take a few hours. You're like, we love you. Here's the door. But I'm not leaving my house. In fact, I will lose my credit if I leave my house, because I don't own my house on paper. Come back in 30 years, I'll tell you I might. But it's my house. I'm not going to leave my house. I'm responsible for my house. If I hear that your house burns down, that will make my heart sad. I will pray for you. If my wife and I can help you, we will. But it won't really change the rhythm of my life. If today, while I'm here with you, sharing in God's word, my house burns to the ground, it will affect my life. Of course, anything material can be replaced, but it will displace my family. It's my house. So it would take a lot for me to leave my house. I told my wife years ago, I love to preach so much. If she leaves me, I'm going with her. I, I, I'm not leaving. God says, I'm leaving my house. That's what he says. I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved my soul. I have given the beloved my soul. This is a husband dealing with an unfaithful wife spiritually. In Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5, we know that God uses this language over and over. He says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. So God did not just create. He created and then entered into an intimate relationship with Israel. So let that sort of pour over the pain of this passage. If you study it in the original language, it actually reads in an ancient Hebrew rhythmic way. It's called the kina rhythm. Way too technical to try to explain. I'm not sure I fully understand it. But the way the words flow out in the Hebrew, there is this lamenting song happening in verses 7 and 8 and 9. I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given 
the beloved, my soul, into the hands of her enemies. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. I want to see a lion in a zoo. I want to see a lion where there is large, thick glass between me and him or bars. I don't want to see a lion in a forest. This is what God is saying. What was once my wife has become a threat to my name, my legacy, something that startles even me. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has lifted up her voice against me. So he says, not only is now Israel a wild animal to me in her behavior, she is roaring at me. If I happen to find myself in the wild near a lion, I would like to see his tail, not his head. I want him walking away peacefully. If he turns and roars, I'm out. See ya. I'm gone. Because he is expressing aggression. And God is saying, Israel's not just walking away. She's roaring at me. Is my heritage like a, a hyena's lair? Verse 9. Interesting translation here. Honestly, we don't know. We don't know. Some people translate this like a speckled bird. There's a real close deviation between the word and the Hebrew for speckled bird and hyena's lair. Now, the reason is, are the birds of prey against her all around is the second phrase. Most scholars argue it's probably speckled bird, and it goes something like this. The bright colored bird is more targeted by birds of prey. If you know anything about the animal kingdom, babies are born camouflaged. Deer are born with spots. And when a baby deer is lying in the woods with the splotch of the sunlight on the forest floor, the baby deer with spots on it is almost indistinguishable to the naked eye. This is true of baby birds as well. They're rather ugly when they hatch. They're not beautiful. They don't have the full plumage. And one of this is that from the bird's eye view of a predator looking down, it's very hard to distinguish baby birds in a nest. And so to be brightly colored has its disadvantages. And God is saying, so imagine a brightly colored, a colored bird being preyed upon by birds of prey that primarily hunt through vision. And this is what God says has happened now to his beloved bride. You know, it's one thing for a wife to leave you. It's another thing to watch her leave you so violently that you see her life be destroyed right in front of you. This is the grief that he's hearing. Look at verse 10. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it desolation. It mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate. Now listen to verse 11. But no man lays it to heart. In other words, all this is happening, and God says, and nobody cares. So God's care changed. In fact, Look at verse 8 again. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has lifted up her voice against me. Now watch this. Therefore I hate her. I was taught just like you were taught. God is love. I was also taught we shouldn't hate people. In fact, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount equates hate with spiritual murder. That if you hate someone in your heart, with vengeful venom, 
that, that you've murdered them. You've become as if you want them to be dead. You've become indifferent. You have no feeling for them other than negative. And we know the Bible prohibits this. So what do we do with passages in the Bible? And by the way, this is not an obscured verse. What do we do with passages where God uses this as a term of activity? I have hated her. What, what do we do when the Bible says God hates? Well, there's some stuff that's pretty easy to understand. We know God hates sin. In fact, you know about the seven deadly sins. Proverbs uh, chapter 6, verse 16 through 19, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, and then God lists those haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. So it's easy to see that God hates sin. In fact, one of the terms Christians use a lot is, well, we should hate sin, but love the sinner, and that can be misused a great deal. But we we all understand that we're not to love or like or, or cozy up to sin. In fact, one of the things you recognize about sin is that sin is almost always pleasurable for a moment, but never actually leads to joy or fulfillment. This is why God hates sin, because he knows what it does to us. He knows how it leaves us empty. We're trading, as Dr. Piper said earlier, that which is divine and eternal that can really satisfy our soul for that which is temporary, this carnal, of the flesh that never really leads to joy and completement. But I still haven't answered the question. What do we do when God in the scriptures is characterized himself as saying I hate a group of people or I hate a specific person so in order to understand this I think it's important because it matters you have to understand that context matters in a tremendous way when we unpack the Bible some commentators have said it this way I, I think it's a, a, a fair explanation there's the idea of soft hate and hard hate so to, to express hate in a soft way means to just favor less. Let, let me give you an example. Jesus is talking in the book of Luke. What does he say in the book of Luke? You got to remember, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, let me stop right there. If we read, murder them spiritually in our hearts, hate, I got a problem. I love my mama. Sometimes I could take or leave my dad. Sorry, Dad, I know you're watching online. But I love my mama. Everybody loves their mama. When I watch my children and their mama, I would love their mama more than their daddy. Everybody loves their mama. Everybody loves their mama. In fact, it's terrible not to love your mama. So, so what's Jesus saying here? Well, fortunately, we have four Gospels. The parallel passage in the book of Matthew, little bit different language, same meaning. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy. Oh, okay. He's not saying hate, like be vindictive, like murder spiritually. He's saying that your devotion to me should far outweigh any devotion you have to any human relationship. Remember the opening illustration? People can and should strengthen your faith, but your love and faith has to be in God alone. So we, we get that. We understand that. And there are times when God even used that word for himself. But, but what about the hard hate? Well, in the Bible, the word hate does not appear often as an emotion, like a 
charged, anger, hate. It's rather a choice to designate someone as an enemy. And when you're my enemy, I'm going to oppose you. I'm not for you, I'm against you. Think about how the psalmist says it. Psalm 139, God is cozying up to his people. He says, do I not hate those who hate you? Now again, God is saying, have I not said that if someone is your enemy because I'm your God, they become my enemy? Think about it in familial terms, for example. I don't wake up any day, nor I hope to you, to oppose anyone. But if you come against my wife, if you come against my children, if someone come against one of you as my brother or my sister, immediately I don't have favorable thoughts about that person. And if you are taking advantage of an individual and that individual is innocent and I'm put in a position to stand up for them, then in that moment I'm favoring and loving and supporting them and I'm in opposition to you. Listen to the language. And I do not loathe those who are against you. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. We see this in Isaiah chapter 63. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. I was trying to think of a human illustration. When I became your pastor back in 2004, a pastor by the name of Bobby Welch was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, retired pastor, wonderful man, loves the Lord, faithful pastor down in Florida. And I remembered his testimony distinctly. You see, he was a young man of the 60s, fought in Vietnam, shot in the lung, in the chest, in the jungle, of course, by a Vietnamese soldier, North Vietnamese soldier. Thought he was going to die. Would tell you it was a miracle that he made it out, that he got the help he needed. They medevaced him out. He lived. Came home from serving our country, Vietnam, began his career as a pastor. Years later, returned to Vietnam on several mission trips, and here's a picture of him talking to one of the defense officials of the nation of Vietnam, sharing how Christ had taken that bullet hole, letting him fill it, and used it in his life. In fact, later in his life, Dr. Welch became a champion for sharing the gospel with the Vietnamese people. He was overwhelmed with love for them. See, there was a moment in his life where a nation was his enemy and he fought against them. But then individually, he harbored no hate against individuals because of their need for the love of God. And this is true of the Lord. We find that the Lord opposes the proud. But the moment any person will turn, they become a friend of God and no longer an enemy. Now, this is language from a husband who's lost his wife. She has not been taken. She has walked away. Israel has walked away, and so he is saying, if I quantify my relationship with you, I was once yours, and you were once mine. You lived in my house, and I dwelt there with you. You were my heritage, my legacy. You were as intimately connected to me as any nation. And now, you're a bunch of wild beasts roaring in opposition to me. And so I have no other recourse but to change my covenant love to complete opposition. You say, well, Pastor, this is a great history lesson. Thanks for the definition of hate. I appreciate that. I'll bring it up at the water cooler this week at work. But what does this mean to my life? 
Do you know what Paul said to the Ephesian believers about sin? In the book of Ephesians, Paul makes a great statement. He says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Some massive implications from Jeremiah and Ephesians. But really they could be summed down to this simple statement. Until we really deal and understand the grief of God when we sin, you'll never deal with your sin fully. Now let me just quantify that or qualify that. You don't have to pay for your sin. The Bible has no mention of penance. It's not in the Scripture. You don't have to die for your sin. You, 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 you don't even have to earn the forgiveness that you think you need to in front of a holy God. You don't have to be defined by your sin. You, you, you absolutely can be unchained, set free, forever, never found guilty of anything you've ever done. This is the grace of Jesus. But often for many believers, what happens is the hot fires of recent salvation get cooled off and we compartmentalize and we justify and we compromise. And one of the prerequisites of allowing sin into our life is that we stop feeling the weight of grieving our heavenly father you know there's a difference between obeying the rules of a stranger and wanting the respect of a beloved grandmother or grandfather you've all had teachers or coaches or employers that you did what they said because you had to but i hope you've had a mentor a grandfather a grandmother maybe a parent who you not only did what they said because you believed you should when you didn't do what they said, you saw the hurt in their eyes and it bothered you that you had let them down. This is the mastery of motivation. Motivation is not forcing people to do what they don't want to do. M motivation is helping people see a picture of what they could become so that they begin to fall in love with a better version of themselves and they push themselves and you're the motivator behind them. And when they stumble and they fall, in addition to the own sense of guilt or conviction they may feel, they look at you and they say, I've let you down. I'll do better. I want to do better. You've invested in me. You loved me. You meant so much to me. Well, no one else believed in me. You believed in me. You're doing what you need to do. I want to do what I want to do. This is the power of the church serving together. Your faithful walk makes me want to be more faithful. And when you stumble, I want to help you because I'm just the next stumble waiting to happen. And I'm going to need you to help me. This is the beauty of the body. Now imagine God. Imagine God fully aware of our sin and it grieving him and us not appreciating that. In fact, I think that may be the most painful statement in this entire passage. Verse 11. They have made it a desolation. Desolate, it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate. Now listen to this. But no man lays it to heart. Nobody cares. Nobody cares to grow indifference. This is a heartache only God can feel because only God is the perfect creator 
who is fully aware of our intended created purpose. We need to be careful painting God in a corner of loneliness. God did not create us because he's lonely. God is fully sufficient in and of himself. He is unity and community. He is one triune God who reveals himself in Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Father and the Son and the Spirit have been in perfect unity and wondrous fellowship for all of eternity. In fact, this is what makes a Friday afternoon on Calvary so devastatingly painful when the Son says, My Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me for the first time in eternity? A barrier existed between the Father and the Son for the redempted purpose of creation being forgiven. And so God does not deal in loneliness the way you and I do. But I cannot rob the text of its meaning. I see a husband standing there with a house he's left because she doesn't want him there anymore with a heritage and children he's had to walk away from because she's led them astray. And then as he looks and he sees his wife and his heritage and his house and his legacy be defiled, nobody even cares that he's missing. This is a heartache that only God can feel. So the next time you struggle with sin, Take a step back and ask the question, am I grieving the Lord? And if I know that I am, perhaps that can be that motivation to stop, turn, say, I need to get help. I need some accountability. I, I need some strength. I need some prayer. I need to change my relationship. I need to change my circle of friends. I need to change the trajectory of the decisions that I'm making. Because then Jeremiah gives us a beautiful glimpse of secondly and finally a hope only God can offer. Something happens in verse 14, and I'll be honest with you, having been in this book since August, I needed it to happen. <laughs> By the time we get to chapters 30 and 31 and 32 and then over in the 40s, I mean Jeremiah is letting grace roll down like thunder. But right now, we're indictment mode. I mean, we are hearing it. And yet we have this little nuggets of hope. Look what happens in verse 14. Thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors. Did you know God had an HOA? All my evil neighbors. All my evil neighbors. I don't have an HOA. I'd be the HOA's worst enemy. My children think our front porch is another bathroom. You don't want me in your neighborhood. We skin animals in the backyard, and there's no telling what we do in the front yard. But everybody knows what it's like to have a neighbor that is, shall we say, difficult. You pray, dear Jesus, give them a farm down in Woodruff. And the prayers were answered, and therefore we move. But he says, all my neighbors, all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given the people of Israel to inherit. So who's he talking about here? Let me give you some biblical names. The Edomites, the Amites, the Moabites, the Philistines. These were people who lived around Israel. Now, don't get those confused with the Babylonians, okay? The Babylonians defeated the Assyrians, and the Babylonians are coming from Babylon. And they're going to march up and then come in from the north, and they're going to destroy Jerusalem. And this is going to happen right after this book. In fact, some of the prophecies of the book happen after it happened, 586 B.C. 
But when God gave Israel the promised land, there were some displaced people there who ended up settling on the fringes, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Edomites. And some of those neighbors played ball for a little while, and some of those neighbors led the nation of Israel away, worship this God, worship that God. And so God is talking about those people, and he's saying, let me tell you about my neighbors. Now, don't you think it's interesting? God didn't say they were Israel's neighbors. He said they were his neighbors. Do you know why? Because he keeps his word. You know what his word says? He said, I'll be your people. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I will dwell with you. In other words, when God lives in your heart, that's not your neighbor. That's God's neighbor across the street. Hmm. When God lives in your heart, you're not in a conversation with somebody. You're in a conversation with somebody, and the spirit of the living God is in you right there in that moment. He says, all my neighbors, but then he turns hopeful. It's a great place to close. He says, behold, I will pluck them out from the land, and I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them, and after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them, and I will bring them again, each to his heritage and each to his land. So for the first time in several chapters, God said, I'm about to do a good thing, a new thing, and it shall come to pass if they will diligently learn the ways of my people. To swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal. So if they'll switch, if they'll stop telling my people to follow the false gods, and they'll begin to follow me the way they once taught my people to follow other gods, then this is what's going to happen. He says, they shall be built up in the midst of my people. But if any nation will not listen, then I will destroy, I will utterly pluck it up. And destroy it, declares the Lord. Now that language, to pluck, to pick up. Remember way back last August, those of you watching online, you may remember as well, in Jeremiah chapter 1, when Jeremiah is commissioned, he says, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And I reminded you that Jeremiah is not a military leader, he's not a political leader, he's not a president of anything. He's saying, Jeremiah, my prophetic words through you are going to be so powerful that at your word, when you speak, what's going to happen is reality. And I'm telling you to deliver the news that I'm going to destroy some nations and I'm going to build up some nation. But here's the conditional clause. If any of my evil neighbors, <laughs> I used to be an evil neighbor of God, if any of my evil neighbors, if any of them, will begin to bow down and worship me, I will build them up. And right then we see something. God never covenanted with Israel just to save his grace for Israel. From the first promise he made to Abraham, he said, out of you, the blessing for all nations will come. In fact, he says, if anyone, calls upon the name of the Lord. Remember Romans chapter 10? Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, God's plan was always to find anybody in any nation no matter your ethnos, no matter your skin color, no matter what the world around you may say, he's looking for anybody anywhere who would say, I believe in the Lord God and I confess him and him alone as my Lord and I will follow him. I think it's interesting that in this passage he says, if they will swear by my name 
and you will teach them and they will learn the ways of my people. So your profession and your pattern matter. You profess God and the pattern of your life professes God. If your words and your walk don't match, your witness is wonk, is broke, doesn't work. But when your word and your walk match, when your lips and your life line up, you're living under a Lord. If your lips and your life don't line up, you're living a lie. This is the way it works. And we see this all throughout the New Testament. What did Paul say to the believers in Ephesus? These were not Israelites. For through him we both have access into one spirit so that we're no longer strangers and aliens. These are immigration terms, not science fiction terms. He's saying we're no longer outsiders. We're no longer illegal. We're no longer undocumented. We are now a part of the nation of God. But you are fellow citizens with all the saints and members of all the household of God. You know what else he says? Built on the foundation. Remember the language in verses 12, 13, 14, 15 of this passage? I will build you up. This same language carries over to the New Testament. Anybody who comes to God for this hope will be built up and on the apostles and prophets. Guess who one of those is? Jeremiah. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Peter said it best, and I'll close with this one. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The Black Lives Matter movement this summer caused all of us to visit, revisit, investigate, pray the issue of race in our nation. And like every pastor, we spoke to that this summer and continue to. But I love it when the text blows the human argument out of the water. So, so the argument of the Black Lives Matter, regardless of whether or not you agree with all of the values of the organization, I certainly do not. But the argument of the Black Lives Matter statement was to say, hey, listen, there is a group of people here that many of you are not seeing who deserves to be seen. This is why, if you remember, whenever a political leader would come out and say, all lives matter, the Black Lives Matter movement would react to that and say that it is insensitive. You can draw your own conclusions to all that, but here's my point. My God is the one who invented that every single skin color matters. My God, the God of the Bible, had a heart for every black life every Asian life, every Anglo life, every Native American life, every South American life, every European life, every single life. What's he looking for? He says, listen, whether or not you were once for me or against me, you can be my neighbor. I will be your husband and you can be my spiritual wife if you will call upon me and profess me and trust me and I will build you up. And you know what? We're okay to offer that. There's no leader that can offer that. Only God can offer that. And therefore, only God, only God grieves as your creator over your sin. But only God rejoices as your redeemer over your repentance. You repent, I'll rejoice, but I cannot rejoice as your redeemer. 
You sin, I may grieve, but I cannot grieve as your creator. But only God can. Therefore, your faith must be in only God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to dive into it and to see that you and you alone are God. It is not a pleasant thing to think about grieving you because every person in the room, including myself, even as I deliver this prayer, all of us are aware, Lord, of the times in our life where we have grieved you. In this room, surely there are varying degrees of spiritual maturity. We're all on a journey. We know that there are those watching online or those sitting here in this beautiful auditorium who are just now learning what it means to follow Jesus. There are many who say, Pastor, I, I made that decision years ago. But I know for me, Lord, I confess to you that one of the prerequisites of my sin whenever it occurs in my life is that I fail to appreciate the degree to which you are grieved over me when I rebel against you. And yet equal to that, or else I would be crushed, is the hope you offer to any person anywhere who would call upon your name. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, many of you have done that. You're watching online, you're sitting here with us live. You say, you know, I'm so thankful I've called upon his name. As you watch those precious brothers and sisters be baptized earlier, you remembered that day when you were baptized. Do you know we should never get over calling upon his name? You know, salvation is used in three tenses in the Bible. I was saved. When Christ comes back, there'll be that glorious day where I will be forever saved. And today and every day until then, I am being saved. It does not mean we don't live in the assurance of our salvation. But there should be a holy fear to not grieve our Heavenly Father. And a tremendous strength that comes in knowing when we were nothing more than an evil neighbor. He moved in our house. He redeemed us. And he gave us life. His name is Jesus. And he'll redeem you today. If you know him and you've strayed from him, he'll take you back. If you're confused and you're hurting, he will be a shoulder for you to cry on. He's rest if you're weary. He's a firm father if you're wrong. He's a counselor if you're confused. He's a joy giver if you're discouraged. You let him be those things. This altar is going to be open as it has been over the last few weeks. and We just want you to come and pray. And I want to say also, we have a prayer room in our concourse. I know walking down this aisle can be rather intimidating, and perhaps you'd like to talk with someone away from the crowd, away from the noise. Just at the top of the door, there's a prayer room right in the center of the concourse, and men and women are waiting right now to pray with you. So whether you come to the altar and pray, whether you go to the prayer room, we want you to respond. Father, you move now as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together.